Zoolander meets Zelensky, and other reasons I have serious doubts about the narrative around Ukraine. Plus, Andy Stanley is in hot water for dissing Bible inerrancy once again. And loneliness comes to the church. How do we fix the pandemic of isolation? This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. Yes, it is your favorite night of the week. I don't care what you think it really is. And so I hope, though, that your Father's Day weekend was great. I hope if you're not a father that you uh, called your father, loved on your father, helped your father, blessed your father, or allowed your father to just sit, relax, and veg out all day. I don't know. I didn't do that, but nonetheless, (laughs) happy post-Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And this is episode 31 of season five on the deep end. And we are going to talk about the Ukraine war because it's four months old, almost four months old. And... It's getting nutty what's going on around the country with regards to how we have approached this war and the national media narrative. I don't trust it. I don't know about you. Let's talk about Deep End News. Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. Yeah, I just don't trust. I just don't trust the media's narrative. I want to talk to you about the super serious war in Ukraine. You know it's super serious uh, when we have Derek Zoolander visiting President Vladimir Zelensky and tells the Ukrainian leader, quote, you're my hero. Yes, this guy. Remember Zoolander who lost so many of his male model friends in that tragic gasoline accident from the 2001 film Zoolander? Remember that guy? Yeah, he knows a thing or two about uh, gas price hikes and how everything that we are feeling right now in the pump is because of the horrible actions of one Mr. Vladimir Putin. Putin's gas price hike. You know, Putin, Putin's price hike. Putin's price hike is hitting America hard. Putin's price hike. So narrative, narrative, narrative. And let us let us be comforted, ladies and gentlemen. Let us be comforted that all is well for Ben actor, comedian Ben Stiller met with former actor, comedian Vladimir Zelensky to tell him you're my hero. <laughs> uh, why? Why are the court gestures of our country so involved in politics of the political left? It's just kind of ironic. It's kind of weird. It's kind of crazy. That's why I don't trust the narrative. Remember these these actors that proudly wore their blue ribbons at the Oscars to show their support for the Ukrainians. Remember when Sean Penn threatened to smelt his Oscar if Zelensky wasn't invited to speak at the Oscars? And I guess he has to have smelt it now because he did not show up. Uh, it just kind of makes me wonder where where is the outcry by the political left, by the celebrities in Hollywood over the blatant human rights violations that happen continually in the country of Ukraine. Like, for instance, did you know that President Zelensky banned three opposition television stations a year ago, well before the Russian invasion happened? Did you know that he banned political opposition, nationalized the media to create a unified information system or what we call uh, political speak, uh, subsidized by the government and foisted on us as news. Were you aware that Ukrainian troops not only filmed Russian POWs weeping and crying out for their moms, a violation of the Geneva Convention, they also filmed killing Russian POWs. This is a country that for some reason we are asked to pledge undivided loyalty for. Because why? Do do we have to whitewash Ukraine immediately and demonize Vladimir Putin immediately? And it's just black and white and that's it? Like, like this, this is the frustration for me. I am not buying the narrative because 
there's corruption in this country. I'm not, not, not saying that Vladimir Putin's a good guy, but there's corruption in all nations. And uh, were we aware of the fact that Ukraine was ranked 120 out of 182 countries in its uh, Transparency International Corruptions Perception Index, making it the second most corrupt country in all of Europe? Are, are we aware that Ukraine also ranked 101 out of 109 countries in the 2017 Index for Public Integrity? And on and on it goes. Its own country, three out of three to five percent of the population, only three to five percent of the population have any trust in Ukraine's justice system. Uh, that's not exactly a moral country. And what about Ben Stiller's opinion on the fact that no part of Ukraine recognizes same-sex marriage, and yet Vladimir Zelensky is his hero, and our country is footing the bill for this war to defend Ukraine at $53 billion so far, including $100 million for translators for refugees. That's a how expensive is a translator for a refugee that we have to spend $100 million of our tax-paying money? How expensive is that? And, and maybe I got into the wrong business. This is why I just really distrust the media. And this is why the, the distrust in the media is at an all-time low. And this is why I do this channel, so that we can tell you what's going on reality in reality and not, not fabricate news according to a narrative. I got no dog in this hunt. I got no advertisers. I don't sell any kind of sponsors, any kind of airtime on this channel. It's just supported by a few of you. I don't even know who you are because I don't even have access to how the money comes in. So thank you for supporting if you are supporting. But but we are here to give you the news and how it relates to your life as a Christian. So let's get into just a touch on Pride Month today. And it, it's in the segment of really good news. Watch. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. Some positive movement. Some positive movement in the transgender craziness. And this is from ChristianHeadlines.com. Transgender women banned from international swimming events. They have a, quote, performance advantage, end quote, organization rules. <laughs> Who would have thought? The article reads, three months after a transgender athlete won an NCAA title, the international organization that oversees swimming competitions on Sunday approved new rules prohibiting biological males from competing in women's competitions if they have gone through male puberty. Now, I don't think that that's far enough. I think that biological males should be banned completely. Never mind as long as it's before puberty that they transition. Because let's be honest, if it's before puberty that they transition, what's, what's going to happen? Parents are just going to encourage their children, their male children to transition before puberty so that they can get involved in women's sports and get that swimming scholarship and take it away from some uh, well-deserving young lady. I mean, really, think about it. But anyway, the article goes on, the International Swimming Federation known as FINA approved a new policy with 71.5% of the vote. That's pretty amazing. It's that high, 71.5%, which just goes to show that far more people agree with you and me than we realize. Anyway, it will prohibit swimmers such as Penn's Leah Thomas from competing in international comp competitions, including the Olympics, and from being eligible for world records. Thomas in March became the first transgender woman to win an NCAA championship with a dominant performance in the women's 500-yard freestyle. Thomas previously swam for Penn as a man. And remember, he was terrible as a man. He was like the last in the uh, NCAA uh, uh, rankings. The new uh, FINA rules prohibit transgender athletes from swimming in women's competitions if they transitioned after the age of 12. FINA says it will work toward establishing an open category for swimmers who are transgender women. Male to female transgender athletes may only compete in FINA, uh, may only compete in FINA meets if they can establish that they have not experienced any part of male 
puberty, Fiona cited studies showing that males have a relative performance advantage over biological females. Okay, so again, we need studies. <laughs> we need studies to find this out. It's good news, though. It is, it is really good news. There is a pushback against this insanity. Not enough, in my opinion. Not enough. And you know it's really bad, by the way, when even a drag queen has to say something about Pride Month, has to say something about parents who are bringing their kids to these pride parades and drag queen shows, and a drag queen has to step up to the mic and say, enough is enough, don't be cray cray, watch. What, what in the hell has a drag queen ever done to make you have so much respect for them and admire them so much? Other than put on makeup and, and jump on the floor and writhe around and do sexual things on stage. I have absolutely no idea why you would want that to influence your child. Would you want a stripper or a porn star to influence your child? It, it makes no sense at all. A drag queen performs in a nightclub for adults. There is a lot of filth that goes on, a lot of sexual stuff that goes on. And backstage, there's a lot of nudity, sex, and drugs. Okay? So I don't think that this is a, a, an avenue you would want your child to explore. But you can raise your child to be just a normal, regular, everyday child without including them in gay, sexual things. And honestly, you're not doing the gay community any favors. In fact, you're hurting us, okay? We have already had a reputation of being pedophiles and being perverts and deviants. We don't need you to bring your children around. So you keep your kids at home or take them to Disneyland or take them to Chuck E. Cheese. But if you need your child to be entertained by a big human in a costume or in makeup, take them to the circus or something. Yes, queen, like slay queen. I mean, seriously, if only pastors and church leaders had enough guts to say something like the drag queen just said. But as I shared recently on this channel, pastors today seemed hell-bent on making concessions to an increasingly secular culture instead of leading God's sheep into truth. Which brings me, unfortunately, to a pastor that I really do like, but I'm really starting to have a problem with. His name is Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley has made some new some new news in the wrong direction. Uh, I bring you back to 2018. This is the son of TV preacher Charles Stanley, by the way, if you don't know. He got heavy criticism for making the claim that the early church unhitched itself from the Old Testament, and we should too, saying, quote, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. And this spread around uh, Christian Twitter because Everybody has to have an opinion on everybody else. And anyway, I said nothing because I understood the idea behind what he was saying. We don't um, trim the edges of our beards the way the Jews are supposed to. We don't sacrifice lambs, sheep, and goats anymore. Thank God the church can stay relatively clean because of that. Uh, we, we, we don't, you know, practice the planting techniques, the ceremonial laws of ancient Israel, Thank God we don't stone disobedient children. Now, disobedient children are stoned. But anyway, um, that's for another discussion. But what he is saying here is kind of dangerous, 
I didn't address in 2018, but it's resurfacing in a different video recently. And I wanted to address it because maybe you have questions if you hear things like this. We don't unhitch from the Old Testament. We understand that Jesus never unhitched from the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's no unhitching there. We don't, we don't understand Jesus without the Old Testament, and, and, nor does Jesus make sense to the Jewish believers originally without the Old Testament. In that same chapter, by the way, in Matthew 5, Jesus elevated the standard. He didn't de-elevate, he didn't unhitch. He elevated the standard of the Old Covenant, revealing the heart of the values of the Old Testament were really much deeper than the letter of the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's Old Testament, but then the next phrase he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. In other words, it's not just not having adultery, it's how is your heart concerning that unmarried woman or that married to another man's woman, man, woman. In other words, Jesus doesn't unhitch, he takes it far more seriously than we do. And, and hear me, no one, no one took the Bible more seriously than Je the Old Testament, by the way, more seriously than Jesus. In fact, the scripture says that Paul went weekly to the synagogue and proved that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures. That's in the book of Acts, all over the book of Acts. Where does that, what scriptures is he talking about? Not the New Testament scriptures because they weren't even written when Paul was doing that. Those were Old Testament scriptures. So if you don't have the Old Testament scriptures, you do not have a convincing proof that Christ, Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it says this in Acts chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and at, at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and tried to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. I mean, I mean we don't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. We don't know Christ without the Old Testament. Paul told Timothy, to, con to continue in what you've learned, 2 Timothy 3.14. Uh, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings of the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So anyway, Andy Stanley came under serious scrutiny uh, for those comments about unhitching from the Old Testament. And I said nothing but then this happened from uh, ChristianHeadlines.com. Andy Stanley sharply criticized for a tweet about the accuracy of the Bible. Here was the tweet, okay? And just listen to it. Quote, the Christian faith does not rise and fall in the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises, rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the, the tweet was posted and then quickly deleted. And it was a direct quote taken from a message that Andy Stanley had delivered the week before at North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, where he serves as senior pastor. Now, now Stanley uh, linked to a video the full message in the tweet, which was event eventually deleted. And I have a feeling that maybe one of his staffers posted the tweet. I'm sure a lot of these guys, they don't tweet for themselves. Even I don't tweet everything for myself, but uh, it was deleted quickly or someone asked for it to be deleted. And let's be honest, pastors, including this guy right here, tweet stupid stuff 
and then go back later and delete it. In fact, I'm always going back over my Twitter feed and deleting some things that I probably shouldn't have tweeted. But this line of reasoning that the Bible's inerrancy, and, and, and for those of you who are new to the faith, biblical inerrancy means that the Bible is without error. Without error. It doesn't mean there's no grammatical mistakes. It doesn't mean that there's no run-on sentences. It doesn't mean that there's no um, small uh, discrepancies in the manuscripts that we have from ancient times. That's unavoidable fact. Like, there are tons of discrepancies in the Bible, but they are, there is no theological discrepancy. There's no discrepancy between the manuscripts that we have on hand from ancient times that undermine historic Orthodox Christianity. You have to know that because there's a lot of guys that go around the world making a lot of money saying that the Bible's full of contradictions and even the ancient manuscripts contradict each other. Um, you got to be aware that that's not actually true when it comes to Orthodox theology. So this idea, again, that the accuracy of the 66 books of our Bible. That really doesn't matter. Basically, that doesn't matter. We don't need to worry about inerrancy. This is a slippery slope. And this is the slippery slope that quote-unquote deconstructionists are really taking right now to just kind of abandon the faith. It used to be called apostasy. Now it's just called deconstruction. It's a nice way of saying I'm losing my faith. And Andy Stanley, I have followed this man for a long time. I have great respect for this man. I believe he believes in inerrancy. I believe he believes Jesus is the only way. I believe he's a Christian. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes I think he goes too far trying to reach non-believers by subtly, subtly suggesting that it's okay to undermine historic Orthodox theology. And let me explain, because I watched the whole sermon. I watched the whole sermon, and here was the argument that Andy Stanley made. He put this chalkboard up with the timeline of the first century, where the event of the resurrection led to the movement of Jesus' followers, which led to them documenting the movement and then assembling the Bible in the fourth century. And he actually is a wonderful speaker, a wonderful preacher, and I value his contribution to the church greatly. But I want to say that there's far more to it than that, and it has everything to do with the fact that we absolutely must not disconnect from the Old Testament. We cannot have the story of Christ if there is no Old Testament because the Old Testament was prophesying and pointing to Christ. And, and, and even the New Testament is filled with references to the Old Testament in light of Jesus's fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the moral values of the Old Testament are not eradicated, they are again elevated in the New Testament. Now, let me boil it down with my own chart. So, you've got this guy named Jesus. Yes, the Christ. He's the center and the foundation of the faith. That I agree. He's the chief cornerstone. And yes, if there is no resurrection, there's no point to this faith. But all of those suppositions, he's the Christ, he's the anointed one, he's the fulfillment of the ages, he's the, he's the son of God. All those suppositions are based on the accuracy of the 66 books that attest to them. You don't get the, the, the waiting for the anointed one if you don't read the Old Testament books pointing to a waiting for the anointed one. So you got Jesus Christ, and we know about him 
because of the disciples that he left behind and filled with the Spirit. In fact, in John chapter 14 and 16, he talks about that the Holy Spirit's going to come and remind him and teach them and lead them in all truth, the truth about himself. So those apostles would eventually read the Old Testament because they were Jewish boys. They would read the Old Testament through the lens of this guy named Jesus that they followed for three years and watched die and rise again. As Matthew constantly says, over and over again, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This was to fulfill what the prophets wrote. This was to fulfill what Isaiah wrote. They're always interpreting Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And their writings eventually, yes, were collected and then added to, not become, they were added to Holy Scripture. So the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament adopt, were now joined with the writings of the apostles and their followers in the New Testament to produce a very accurate collection that preserved in perpetuity the presentation of the truth that is in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfilled the Old Testament and died and rose again and is building a church that grows in the knowledge of the truth of Scripture. The point that I'm trying to make, friends, and it's such an important point, is you need all of Scripture. And Andy Stanley is doing us no favors by making these comments, these subtly undermining comments to orthodox biblical Christianity and theology that values and appreciates the Old Testament and isn't ashamed to do so. Like I think there's sometimes some preachers, they're ashamed of what the Bible says. And they don't need to be. Because if you interpret the Bible rightly, you should have more pride and confidence in the Bible, not less. Let, let's just take some words from the Bible uh, for themselves, right? Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens in the, uh, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The, the apostles and prophets. You're built on them. The, the apostles, New Testament. Prophets, Old Testament, right? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Or Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Uh, you don't make Christians without the Bible. You don't get Christians without the Bible. Yes, yes, yes. Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures. But but you don't get Christ without the prophecies of the scriptures. Christ, the scriptures, now I know Christ was always in existence. I mean, what I'm talking about is you don't get clarity about who he is and who to wait for without the scriptures, and you don't get the proper interpretation of what he did in fulfilling the scriptures without the New Testament scriptures. And pastors have got to stop tiptoeing around this stuff. We've got to stop tiptoeing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith does not come by clever arguments of men. Paul makes that case in 1 Corinthians. And pastors are too hard trying to make this faith palpable to unbelievers. We are. It's, it's not our job to make the Bible acceptable to unbelievers. It's our job to make the Bible clear to unbelievers and believers. Because no matter what we say, those who do not believe consider the Bible folly. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, find yourself a pastor who opens the Bible, who's not afraid to get to the text, read the text, and interpret the text without a bunch of high-minded-sounding arguments, and then let the chips fall where they may. 
Because Jesus promised in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow me. I, I used to do this stuff. I used to dance around with the scriptures. I used to try to make it really appealing to non-Christian. You know what I got? I got a bunch of fake Christians in my church. I got a bunch of people who were just nominally attached to the idea of Jesus and were never confronted about sin, repentance, righteousness, the truths of scripture that completely contradict the, fund the, 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 the ideas and values of our culture. And we're not creating disciples when we do that. We're creating false disciples. And I, I, I'm just thinking that now more than ever, now more than ever, we need to wake up and realize, Christians, that all this pandering to culture by lowering Scripture or shying away from Scripture or being a little bit of ashamed of some Scripture, it's not doing much to improve the spiritual condition of our culture. We've had 30-plus years of seeker-sensitive churches. We've had 30-plus years of being, you know, really sensitive to unbelievers. And, and what has it done but produce half-hearted, weak-willed Christians and not actually converted unbelievers? I bring you the story from Christian Post that the number of Americans who believe in God has now dipped to a new low. Since Gallup has started tracking seven decades ago, America's belief in God is at 81%. Now, that's still extraordinarily high, but I'm going to tell you why it doesn't matter in a moment. 81% of American adults say they believe in God. Back in the 1950s and 60s, it was at 98% consistently, but it has declined over the years. And this last year, one of the highest percentage drops in history. Uh, it, it says this belief in God has fallen the most in recent years among young adults and people on the left of the political spectrum, liberals and Democrats. These groups show drops of 10 or more percentage points compared to 2022 figures to an average of the 2023-2020, I'm sorry, 2013 to 2017 polls, the results say. The poll notes that only 72% of Democrats, 62% of liberals, and 68% of young people believe in God. So, so we're trying not we, but a lot of Christian pastors are trying desperately, trying desperately to make sure that we reach that young believer who's walking or that young person who doesn't believe in God by making sure that we, you know, don't tell them too much about how the Bible is true. I, I, I'm of a different ilk, okay? I can respect Andy Stanley and at the same time critique him from my point of view. I'm of the ilk of you just stand up and you declare God's word. And then God's word goes into the heart. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it regenerates the heart and it converts the heart from a heart of stone, Ezekiel, right? From a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. And that lives are transformed. We don't inform, we transform through the preaching of the word of God. And I, I also don't worry too much about you know, belief in God, because it's not about believing God, it's about believing in Christ Jesus, right? James, James chapter two, you have faith, you say there is one God, good for you. The demons believe that, and they tremble in, in horror. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're not here to try to create more belief in God, we're here to try to create disciples, but we have this diminishing belief in God because we're no longer making disciples. We're just trying to get people to nominally attach to our churches, and it's doing no good for anyone. We, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do in the church because... The problem of diminishing the scriptural truth, that's not our only problem. We also diminish the responsibility of Christian discipleship, and that is to get outside yourself and to start thinking about other people. I bring you this news article that caught my attention from church leaders. I subscribe to these article, uh, these news sites, and 
they send me stuff all the time about how we're failing and what's wrong with the church and how we need to you know change our church culture to make sure that we start winning again this article caught my attention the lonely crowd church is dying due to friendlessness and the article is written by a guy named mike frost from churchleaders.com and it starts off like this i've lost count of the number of christians who told me they've either stopped attending church or left their church to join another one because they couldn't make any friends there the report they report that the church people were friendly enough they were hospitable and welcoming as one person told me they're they're nice to you, but no one becomes your friend. And it hurts when all that friendliness leads only to friendlessness. So not exactly scientific here in the fact that he's just talking about the fact that he, he's counting the number of Christians who've told him. Not exactly a scientific study, but let's take a look at this loneliness problem. And if you're lonely at church, I've got a solution for you. But it's not the solution that church leaders gives us. Um, first off, the loneliness pandemic is a global pandemic especially amongst the young. This is from USA Today in 2018. It's only gotten, 2019. It's only gotten worse since then. Millennials Gen Z connected without, with thousands of friends, but feeling all alone. And it's only escalated since the pandemic. But back to the article. It kind of irritates me when the idea is we got to change something about the church and what we're doing for people uh, in order so that, you know, we're not just friendly. We're actually helping people make friends. I think, though, it goes back to the problem of the mindset that church is supposed to be here to cater to Christians and non-Christians. Cater to non-Christians by devaluing the Bible and Holy Scripture and kind of partnering with some questionable stuff there, and then cater to Christians by offering endless programs that make it so simple for them to make friends because, after all, they're very lonely in church. What we're doing is we're creating a consumeristic culture, and I think that's the big problem. Consumerism is overrunning the church. I don't think we realize this. How much the consumeristic age of America has infiltrated the church of America. When you consider how today you can Netflix binge watch an entire series of one show in a weekend on a comfy couch while you order food from almost any restaurant and get it delivered to your door at the touch of a screen on your phone, which can also connect you virtually to any person anywhere in the world instantly, when you can order anything right now from Amazon, also get it delivered, and then share your opinions on any number of platforms immediately for publication without real effort or thought put into it. In other words... We don't even realize how our world has emerged, a world which makes you the ultimate egocentric individual. You are the star of your own story on Instagram. You're the king of your own castle at home. And the world exists to serve you at the touch or swipe of your finger. And this has seeped into the church. It has seeped into the church where we're just totally detached from the life of Christ. We are. We're totally detached from the life of Christ. The Christ who came to serve not to be served. Like these passages matter. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition nor conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Or how about that great parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 40, and the king said to them, truly as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do in and for your church. I mean, again, it's antithetical to 2022 Americanism. It's antithetical to the Amazon, Netflix, DoorDash, binge watch system of our country right now. But here's one thing that I've seen in scripture regarding friends. I want to put a list up of 
a few of the friendships, notable friendships of Scripture, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Paul and Barnabas, Jesus and the disciples. What brought them together, by the way, was almost always tragedy. David and Jonathan were both hated by Jonathan's father, Saul. Ruth and Naomi both lost their husbands in a foreign land and had to transverse the continent to get back home to Naomi's hometown in, in Bethlehem. Paul and Barnabas were hunted down, chased down, vilified, and hated by uh, non-Christians for their Christian witness. And then Jesus and the disciples had to go through his crucifixion and resurrection and their own trials and torments in bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let's be honest too about Paul and Barnabas, even that friendship didn't last. They eventually went their separate ways. But remember that Jesus said this to his disciples, and it's important about friendship. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. Friendship is a Jesus value, but Jesus models what true friendship looks like. It's a friendship that seeks to bless others, not simply make friends. That, I think, is where we're missing this, where we're missing a chance to be countercultural. Where we're missing the reality of Scripture's witness because there's one common denominator in these three remaining friendships that I have listed here on the screen. David, Jonathan, Ruth, Naomi, Jesus, and disciples. Here's the common denominator. Are you ready for it? Drum roll. Selflessness. Like, that's what each person did to create the friendship. David was selfless toward Jonathan, protecting and loving him. And Jonathan, selfless toward David, giving up his right to the throne for David. Ruth gave up her homeland and her nationality to be friends with Naomi, to whom she owed nothing. Jesus gave his blood for the disciples, and the disciples in turn gave their blood to bear witness to Christ. Here's a thought for all of those who might be struggling with making friends at church. How about you serve others selflessly, not to make them your friend, but because you want to be a friend? Let me talk about friendlessness in church, my discussion. Number one, it's easy to blame the church. It's hard to in take inventory of your own actions. It's easy to say, oh, I went to that church and nobody reached out to me. Did you reach out? Did you start to serve? Did you get on the team that volunteers, that sweeps, cleans, whatever? Did you introduce yourself to someone new? Did you show genuine interest in someone other than you instead of expecting them to be interested in you? In other words, in the gospel economy, when it comes to being a friend, the rule is always this. You go first. You love others. You give. You lay down. You take initiative, right? And let's also not forget that Jesus lived perfectly, and there was a moment all his friends abandoned him in his darkest moment. That's when he was arrested. They all ran for their lives. Like, you're going to live as a Christian and still be disappointed with the results of your Christian friends. You're, you're, you're going to have people turn on you. You're going to have people abandon you. You're going to have Christians sin against you. And one of the things that I get really peeved about is how people say, well, I was hurt in that church, so I don't want to open up myself to another place in another church. Um, you do realize that they're Christians, which means that they understand that they are sinners and failures at being moral, right? Like that's the requirement to become a Christian. You have to admit you're a failure to become a Christian. You have to admit that you're a terrible person, a terrible no good sinner, that Jesus Christ, a Nazarene carpenter 2,000 years ago, had to die for you to forgive you of your sins. That's what it takes to be initiated into the Christian church. What are you expecting from Christians? Sometimes I have to ask, what do you expect from people who know that they needed forgiveness of sins?
And even when you do your very best, there's still going to be problems with the church. You have to learn how to forgive and move on. Remember that after Jesus was abandoned by those friends and then crucified and Peter denied him, remember that it was Jesus, not Peter, who took the initiative after the resurrection to reach out to Peter and reestablish the friendship. Like, like Jesus could have said, Peter, I'm not talking to you ever again because you let me down. And a lot of Christians do that. But that's not very Christ-like. Because when Peter let Jesus down, Jesus went out of his way to make sure that Peter was restored into friendship and relationship with Jesus. I, maybe, maybe we need to take inventory of ourselves. I'm just saying. Uh, and then lastly, the activity of a Christian is not being a friend, but being a servant to others. Or in more simpler terms, don't seek to make friends, be a friend. And maybe that, maybe if we get out of the consumeristic mindset of our culture, start to say, Lord, I'm here because you first loved me. Now, responsively, responsively to your love for me, I am going to reach out in love to people who are unlike me or maybe people that are like me and not wait for them to love me. I'm going to love them in action, in word, in deed. And I think that when you do that, you're going to find yourself surrounded by friends and you're going to be the least lonely person on the planet. That's the show, guys. I hope it's helped you. If you can support the channel, I'd much appreciate it, or at least the team would appreciate it. Like I said, I don't see any of the money that comes to the channel. This is helping us get advertising and word out and pay some of our bills. And I will be back tomorrow night as normal for the deep dive as we dig into Romans chapter 16. Like, And uh, I don't know if I said it already, but I'll say it again if I already said it. Uh, we only got two episodes remaining tonight and next week of the deep end. And then I take a break, but we've got fresh content coming to the channel, some of which you have seen, but it's been uh, reduced down from the second half of the Revelation series. That's going to start the day after July 4th. And we also have a new uh, series of videos coming out called Faith and Football. And I've interviewed some uh, important football players, coaches, retired stars from the NFL who talk about what Jesus means to them. And that's coming to the channel soon too. So make sure if you haven't already, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and make sure that you're hitting that notification bell because that's the way that you get notified on your smartphone every time we go live. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow on a deep dive Bible study.